From the hidden secrets of our backyards to the realities of the third world, we take a raw and real look into the challenges and the pursuits of social justice. Welcome to The Point. The Point Podcast is brought to you by ThePoint.life, offering healthcare, entrepreneurship, and education both domestically and internationally. Visit ThePoint.life to find out how you can get involved. If you've been in the nonprofit space for any amount of time, maybe your least favorite word to hear is fundraising. It can be discouraging, hard, and awkward. But don't worry, you're actually not alone. Most people feel this way. But today, we hope to remove some of those negative stereotypes. Fundraising Rebel, Lisa Stuckerman, is here to help us on this journey. Together, we will go from avoiding uncomfortable conversations about money to confident world changers inspiring others to join the cause. She has a strong history of working with some major donors at some massive organizations, but also understands the grassroots nature of even the smallest nonprofit. Join this conversation today and receive a renewed sense of purpose. Hey Lisa, we are so glad you're here. I have learned so much from you over the years, and I know our audience is going to learn so much today. Thank you so much for taking the time to be here. I would love just to hear, because I don't even know actually exactly how you got started in the nonprofit space to begin with. Yeah, Kelly, it's great to be here. Thank you so much for the invite. My name is Lisa Stuckeman. I have my CFRE, which is a certified fundraising executive credential, as well as my master's in nonprofit administration, but I didn't start my career in the nonprofit space. In fact, my undergraduate degrees in theater. And then I went on into sales. And I really have to tell you that I didn't know even what a nonprofit organization was until I got to college. And there was a one-page flyer that was on a corkboard for a scholarship for uh, musical theater students. It was a group of older women, some type of auxiliary. I can't even remember what the name was, but I couldn't believe they were just giving money to people like me. Like I just didn't even understand the concept. And so you had to go to one of the women's homes and sing a couple songs. And then they decided if they were going to fund you or not. And they picked me. Then a couple times through the year, I would go and sing a couple songs that they're like teas and stuff. And they were so encouraging. They were so excited to be potentially funding the next like Broadway star. Now, unfortunately, they didn't get that in me. They probably should have picked some of my other friends who are on Broadway today. But it was my first intersection with people who cared about something and wanted to forward it with their own resources. Mm-hmm. And that left an impression on me. There was a sweetness to that. There was a kindness to that that was kind of different than I had experienced before. Mm-hmm. Then I went on to get married and have a family. And through my kids' activities, I intersected with nonprofit organizations again. And just, I mean, honestly, think the little league, the band moms fine arts boosters for the kids when they were in high school. And because I tend to have some leadership gifts, 
I was invited to be on the board and I started to see how these things worked and that they needed to do fundraising in order to provide the scholarships to the students or have special experiences for the students. And I started working at my church and saw that that was a nonprofit organization as well and became very interested in it. I was having some great success and enjoying it, but I had this whole street smarts book smarts issue. Like I felt like I was good on the street, but I didn't really know why. And so I decided to go back and get my master's at that time. That would have been when my kids were in like junior high or high school Mm -hmm. and um, went to North Park University where they have a master's of nonprofit administration. And it was probably the first class uh, introduction to nonprofits with the amazing Dr. Ferugia who explained that fundraising is the fuel that powers the mission of an organization. Mm -hmm. And I remember sitting there thinking, man, if you could do that, that would have to be really rewarding to know that you were actually making a mission possible because you helped to raise the funds. And I got hooked at that point on, and then went on to do pretty much every frontline fundraiser job annual giving, major giving, events, planned giving. And now I'm in leadership. I'm the vice president of philanthropy at New Life Solutions on the West Coast of Florida. Wow, that's so fun. I love that journey. And and you're right. I think a lot of our listeners were in the nonprofit world. And it's a good reminder to think like some people don't even understand like nonprofits at all, or might not even know that you're in a nonprofit, right? Like the little (laughs) league or the band, or, you know, like that's an interesting concept to think about that. We need to like step outside our own worldview for a while to really understand how we can reach people who want to get connected to what we're doing. Correct. Correct. You know, I think some people are really fortunate that the mission of doing good was planted in them at some point, right? And then over their lifetime, it comes to be. And then there's those who want to come around that because not everyone has the idea. Not everyone. That's a very special posture. But then there are those of us who come around and go, wow, that's amazing. I never had that thought. But there's part of me, of my wiring that tells me that there's an injustice in the world and I want to fix it. And you are someone who is going to fix it. So I'll get behind you. And those are some important pillars, some important philosophies of the nonprofit organization. And that's part of what sets us apart from the for-profit world. Mm, that's good. So a lot of our listeners, as I mentioned, are working in nonprofit space. A lot of our listeners have their own nonprofit. Maybe they've seen a gap in service, whether it be international or local. A lot of us who work in the space have burnout or donor fatigue. So Tell us a little bit about like maybe even like when you started doing this, what your belief about donors were and how you started that connection. And then after years of doing it and being successful at it, share some of those tips with us. I so appreciate the question because I think it's right in this intersection where your organization will rise and fall on fundraising thoughts and practice. And so it's an excellent, excellent question, Kelly. Okay. So when I started in fundraising, I think I probably had the same 
thoughts is a lot of the listeners of we've just got to go in and just ask, man. You just got to like be courageous and just ask for the money, okay? You have to ask for big numbers, right? If you didn't ask for the biggest number you've ever thought of, that was a totally unsuccessful lunch. (laughs) Okay, fundraising is the complete opposite of that. The reason that feels uncomfortable is because it's wrong, right? When we get in situations in life that make us uncomfortable, I mean, some of the time it's stretching us, but most of the time it's because we're not in the right place, okay? We're lost. It feels uncomfortable. And that's part of that philosophy that is that initial philosophy that many people have. Here's where it's different. A moment ago, I mentioned that I believe every person is wired with an injustice they want to see made right. And that that nonprofit is working to see it be made right. The intersection of that donor with that nonprofit brings incredible joy to the donor because they're going to be able to see purpose in their life walked out through the partnership with your nonprofit. They can't do it themselves. The perfect example is, okay, food insecurity in Haiti, right? You and I have both been there. And you go there and it's terrible. It's absolutely terrible. And you want to see that made right. That's an injustice. Everyone should have food. But me here on the West Coast of Florida, if I go to Publix and get a grocery cart and I fill it up with all the food I can, and then I push that grocery cart next door to the FedEx store and say, can you put this in boxes and ship it to Haiti? They will tell me, no, I cannot do that. So how can I get my food to Haiti? Because I have this injustice and I wanna see it made right. Like I cry about it. What do I do? Well, I have to find that nonprofit that is feeding people in Haiti or has connections to feed in Haiti. And then I get in partnership with them. And that's how that injustice is work to be made right. And I go along the journey with you. I see the good, the bad, and the ugly. And then when I'm able to help make something happen, it brings me great joy as a donor. That is called donor centricity. So when I'm centered on that passion in the donor and trying to find a way to make a match with the work that the nonprofit's doing, that's the mindset that will turn your fundraising department upside down. That is where it becomes fulfilling for you as a leader in a nonprofit organization as well, because you see the great joy that it brings. That's very different than go in and ask for the biggest number. Instead, I'm going in and I'm having a conversation with a donor. I'm saying, tell me why this is interesting to you. I mean, the work that I do is absolutely crazy. I cannot believe that you care so much. Tell me about it. And then that conversation will naturally lead to, well, how can I help you? We both agree this is a problem. How can I help you? And then that's when we start to say, well, we have this we need help with, or we're not going to make our budget this month. Can you help? That's a very different conversation. And I think within that, does that mean we also have to be okay with people not being interested in what we're doing? Right, right. And it actually gives freedom for that to happen. So Andy Stanley says that people give to what breaks their heart and what they're grateful for. So let's walk that out for a second. So one of the examples that he gave was we give to what we're grateful for. So 
Like if your kids grow up and go to college and they grew up in the church and then when they go to college, they decide to continue to go to church. And it might be a church that you've never been to before, but the fact that that church has welcomed them, they might feed them one day a week and the kids are going to church. You might be really grateful for that. So out of your gratefulness, you would want to support that financially, naturally. It's a church you've never even been to before, but you're grateful for it, right? Or you can use what breaks your heart in regard to maybe you've had someone in your family who passed away to a certain medical condition, right? Parkinson's say, and it breaks your heart to think of anyone else on the planet having to go through what your family member went through with Parkinson's. So you give to the Parkinson's foundations or nonprofits. When someone comes up to you and says, well, hey, I'm involved in this cancer nonprofit. Would you be interested in coming to the gala? I mean, you might go because it's your friend, but you're not going to have a long lasting relationship with that because it doesn't break your heart the way Parkinson's does. So you're going to seek out Parkinson's ways to help forward research in that area. So what that means then is that as a fundraiser, okay, or as an executive director, if someone says, you know, actually, I think what you're doing is amazing, but I have these other interests, let them go and encourage them. We can't be afraid of getting people in the right place. They'll stay longer and their giving will increase over time. So it's simple, but I think there's a lot of freedom in there. We give to what we're grateful for and what breaks our heart. That's so good. We give to what we're grateful for and what breaks our heart. It's so good to remember. I think we can get caught up, you know, in feeling like we have to convince people sometimes. So how do we fundraise? Like, what are the ways that we do it? I mean, we have walks, we have 5Ks, we have, you know, Facebook fundraisers. What are some things that you've seen bring success over the years? Right. Okay. So don't you so want me to tell you, you have to do this one thing every year. And I'm not going to tell you that. Okay. We got to back up a little bit. We have to take a second and do a little bit of data mining. So whether these organizations have any type of CRM or just the most unorganized Excel spreadsheet ever made, okay. Where they're keeping track of their donors. I really encourage them to look at this data and do something called segmentation, right? And we want to find out different levels of givers within the donors we already have. How many monthly donors do we have? If there's an answer of no to these categories, it's okay. But how many monthly donors do we have? How many donors give $100 cumulative every year? How many donors give a thousand cumulative every year? How many donors give 10,000 cumulative or set whatever levels and start sorting that spreadsheet and see what comes up? How many donors have given for one year? How many donors have given for five years? How many donors have given for 10 years? And we want to kind of see their allegiance to our organization and their behavior to the organization. We have to do that first. We need to find who our, like our annual giving group is, our major giving group. You can define those however you want. Once you know who those groups are, then you'll know the activities to reach them. Not everybody wants to go to a gala. Not everybody wants to walk or run or marathon run. Not everybody wants to 
do a peer-to-peer. We need to know who our people are, even if we only have a hundred or 50, we still need to know who they are so we can be efficient in the activities that we do. Perfect example of this is Giving Tuesday. I'm going to tell you what, that thing drives me crazy. Okay. Drives me up a wall because if you don't participate in Giving Tuesday, it looks like you don't need money. That's offensive to me. Okay. Second of all is Giving Tuesday, usually not very productive at all. Maybe you'll get a hundred bucks, but there's always one story of somebody who got $150,000 through it. And so it's like the urban legend of it lives on and on. Don't do the activities your donors don't want to do. Again, going back to donor centricity, let's figure out what they want to do. Let's ask them, hey, would you like to go for coffee? Hey, do you like it when I write you a letter? Hey, do you do peer to peer? Let's send a survey monkey and find out. We don't have to guess. It's, it doesn't have to be like pop quiz. It doesn't have to be like a guessing. The more we ask, well, there's a really important phrase here. If you want money, ask your donors for advice. If you want advice, ask your donors for money. So let's walk that out. So if I say to a donor, hey, you know, I'm thinking about doing this little event Uh, right inside our office where people would like get a tour and like see what we do every day. Would you like want to come to that tour? Is that, what would you want to see? What would you like, what would you want to, and they'll be like, well, I've never had a tour. Like, I didn't even know you had an office. I mean, I would love to do that. In fact, you know, I could get a couple of my buddies and we could like help you plan that. I mean, you'd probably want like food and I know a food guy. Well, now all of a sudden, Not only is he helping you because you asked him for advice, but he's going to give you money when he gets there and he's bringing his wealthy friends. If you just sit down and tell somebody, hey, I need $5,000 because all of our computers totally stink. Okay. And that might be true. Like it it might be totally true. That donor is probably going to say to you, you know what? What you really need to do is take a tech class and really find out how much technology you actually need. And, um, you know, let me send you the link for that class. You're like, no, our stuff is broken. Okay. If you want money, ask the donor for advice, bring them closer into you. Okay. And then they'll see it and they'll be like, wait, is that like one of the first model Dells? You'll be like, I mean a little, but we've got it going. I'll be like, you know what? Tonight on my way, I'm going to pick you one up at Best Buy versus the reverse, which is what everybody thinks you need to do. And again, this is the turning things inside out. Ask donors for advice. They love to give you advice. Remember, they have that injustice that they're trying to see made right. When you ask them for advice, they get closer to that. I like that. Talk to us about micro galas. Oh, yeah. Okay. So I want to talk to you. This is a newer thing for me. I don't know if I made it up or Okay, so micro fundraising really came into popularity with the Obama campaign. Remember, right? He asked for $5 gifts, $10 gifts, and everybody got involved. And it was micro, the word there was used with small dollar amounts. But what I'm talking about here are micro events, meaning very small events. So small events, but driving big income, big revenue. We all know that galas make nonprofits feel 
like they're real if you have a gala. Like they're real if you go to a fancy space. Your nonprofit is real. What it really means is that your nonprofit paid a lot of money to get everybody in the space. Anybody can do that. I can have my own personal gala if I rent space at a local museum. What's different about a micro event is that you do it as close to the work of your organization as you possibly can. The best practice of that is called bringing the donor to the scene. We want to get them as close to the work as possible. So a micro event might take place in the lobby of your office. It might take place in the conference room of your office. It might take place in a tent in a parking lot next to your office. But donors want to be close to the work. They want that inside scoop, the backstage pass. And you can do a high impact event right in your space by catering a dinner in for 10 people. Here's what you need to do though. You need to be sure you invite the right people. And you need to be sure that you tell them that this is going to be a fundraising event. Again, no pop quizzes. There should never, ever be a pop quiz in fundraising, okay? As a side note, when I'm meeting with a donor and I request a meeting, I tell them if I'm going to request money or not in the email so they know. So it'll be something like, you know, hey, just so you know, this is an update. I have no intention of talking about your giving. I just want to let you know what your giving is doing. Or you know, we've had a couple of meetings where I've given you updates. And to be honest, this one, I want to talk to you about your giving this time. So everybody knows. And if they don't want to give, they'll say no and save us both the time. Okay. With a micro event, we're going to do the same thing. We're going to tell them how much we want to raise. So let me give you an example of one that we did at a apartment complex for single moms. They were behind in their budget. It was their summer slump and they were probably about $45,000 behind for the budget. They had one unit in the complex. There were 10 units in the apartment complex that was flipping over. And in the flipping over, that meant that there was going to be a few days when there wasn't a resident there. So they did this micro event right inside of the apartment. They brought in three round tables and got a caterer And they actually had dinner in the living room of the apartment. Here's where it got really special. On the invitation, it said, please join us for an elegant dinner in apartment 2A. At the bottom of the invitation, it clearly said, help us get through our summer slump. We need to raise $45,000. Please join us this evening. None of the donors that were invited had ever been in the apartment before. You would never invite a donor to come into an apartment of a single mom while she was living there. That is just inappropriate and disrespectful, right? But having them inside there when the mom wasn't there or when the kids aren't there where they've moved out and you can give a tour and you can show this is the mother's. Sometimes there's a small bedroom and there's a large bedroom. Sometimes the mom takes the small bedroom so the kids can have the bigger room to have a play space or... You know, we replace the appliances every time we flip a unit so a mom can have the best she possibly can. It was incredibly emotional and it was unbelievably effective. 
the ask at the end of the dinner was very clear and very strong. I will tell you when you do a micro event, you need to be brave because you're going to be standing three feet from the people that you're asking. You can hide in a gala. You can stand on that stage or whatever, but you're literally going to be looking people in the eye, but their eyes will be glued to you because you brought the donor to the scene and they're going to want to help. The cost of doing a micro event is minuscule compared to what a gala costs. You're using space you already have. If you're cater, you're going to do it for 10, 20 people. It's not like 500 people or whatever you have in your head when you think about a gala. The entertainment's already there because they're in the space. They wouldn't want to hear a guest speaker. They want to hear you. These micro events, I think they're really fascinating and they put a lot of good fundraising practice into play. They're specific in regard to donor-centric. You're bringing the donor to the scene. You're segmenting the donor who needs to be there, one who's already shown you that they love you, they give to you, and they have the ability to write a check, the number that you need. Quite honestly, the wear and tear on the executive director or the volunteers, again, minimal. Planning a dinner for 20 people is a totally different experience than taking six months to plan a gala. You can do this in six days. If you come up with a financial shortage and you need help, you can ring that bell and get people somewhere in three weeks. Also, recently I came into contact with an organization that wasn't able to get the RSVPs they needed for their micro events. So they just postponed it. You have the flexibility to do it. You can't postpone a gala for 500 people. You got to go. You got to do it. So it's something very special and it's very special for your donors. And the event that I was referring to with the apartment complex, they ended up raising double. That's awesome. And, and I love that too, because as you've seen, and a lot of our listeners have seen over the last two, three years with COVID happening everybody who is relying on massive galas, you have to re-strategize completely. And so this, you're right, might allow people to connect with people who are geographically local to them too, which could help deepen those relationships. Yeah. I think you're making a really good point there, Kelly, that COVID has really turned the events upside down. Everybody gave a good swing at the virtual event. And I think you only get one you know, I really do, uh, maybe two, but I think it was all like us making nice, you know what I mean? Like, <laughs> but I would slowly move back into the large event. I would, you know, consider doing three micro events and watching the participation before you jump headlong into a big event again. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. What, on like an emotional or psychological level, what words of encouragement would you tell those fundraisers out there? So I also think you're probably referring to people who fundraising is probably not their primary responsibility. Is that true? Yeah, I would say so. Or people who even uh, a lot of people have to fundraise for not only what they're, you know, doing as far as mission, but a lot of times they have to fundraise for their salary as well. So now they're on the ground, doing the work, having to fundraise to be able to do the work. And then they're saying, wait, I need to buy cheese too. I know. Yay. How could I do that? Okay. I think it's exhausting. I do work with a good amount of missionaries 
And so I've heard their stories. And what I would say there is still reach to your donors because when you talk to them, they again have that injustice that wants to be made right. And you're the one who can help them do that. You're not asking for favors. You're not asking for a handout. You're asking for a partnership. So call your donors. As a side note, though, the board should be helping you. And you need to tell your board you're not okay. That's your first line of defense. It will test your board to see if they really care. I mean, just like friendships, right? When you have a couple of friends who you really think are in your corner and then you go to them and you're like, hey, man, I'm having a really bad day. I was wondering if you could whatever. And they're like, I don't know, like I need to go golf. You're like, "Okay, well, clearly you're not on my team. I want you to have a board, whether it's three family members, okay, or 10 people from the community who really care about what you do. That has to be in place first. You need to be able to be honest with them and you need to be able to ask them for help. If they're not helping you, they need to go. And that's probably a whole nother topic for another time. But the board, your bylaws should be set up that the board is engaged, that they're giving and they're encouraging you. If that is not happening, no wonder you're exhausted. If every one of your board members had a dollar amount that they had to give each year, you knew you'd have money every year. If there's 10 people at $1,000, that's $10,000. That's no joke. If it's 10 people at five, that's $50,000. Guaranteed. If that's not in place, I want you to put that in place. If they're not coming to board meetings and you're trying to rally them, you don't have time for that. They need to go. I encourage all bylaws to say if they don't attend two of the four meetings, they're automatically off the board. There's not even a conversation. It's just done. So that's one of the things I would say. But then you do have donors who want to support you, who care about you. And the fact that you're feeling tired, overwhelmed, they want to be brought into that space. They don't need to hear that everything's perfect. They want you to be honest, just like regular people. Donors are regular people. (laughs) Maybe maybe that's the biggest takeaway from today. They're regular people. They care about people. They have passions and interests, and they want to have community. Yeah, that's good. I've read it in book a few times. You say, like, your donors are adults. Talk to them like adults. (laughs) And you're right. We think we have to, like, hide things or make it very... Mm -hmm corporate when the work we do is not always corporate. It's messy and it's complicated. Yeah. Yeah. So somebody's listening to this and they are, you know, it's striking some chords with them. They're wanting to connect with you. Tell us about how they would go about doing that and what types of services you offer. Yeah, sure. Okay. So the first thing I would say is I have a Facebook page and a LinkedIn page under um, fundraising rebel Lisa Stuckman, Fundraising Rebel. And I put up vlogs. I don't know. It's pretty, I don't know, once a month, once every other week or something like that, where I'll talk about leadership. I'll talk about fundraising. I'll talk about things that I'm seeing because 
while I am in a leadership position, I still have my own portfolio. And that's really important for me to always be a practitioner. So I heard no this week too, by the way. (laughs) Um, I heard yes. We tried some things that didn't work this week. So I'm feeling it as I go. These aren't just like memories, it's fresh. And so um, as I go through the week, I'll be like, gosh, I bet other people might want to hear this. And so I'll throw up some type of vlog. And so you can definitely do that. And then through those same platforms, you'd be able to reach out to me. I'd love to talk to any fundraiser. So if you want to talk about any of these things, let's just jump on the phone and have a chat. If it leads to more in regard to some type of consulting or me walking with you through a project, that would be great. But please don't be stuck. Reach out if you need help. The work that you're doing is too important and we need you. So that's what I'd say. Otherwise, you can just email me at L Stuckeman, which is S-T-U-E-C-K-E-M-A-N-N at iCloud.com. Awesome. And I'll put those links in the show notes as well. We covered a lot of different topics today and I'm <laughs> grateful. I feel encouraged. But what is one thing you'd want listeners to take with them from this conversation? Yeah. It's very similar to the theme that we've had throughout and that as someone in the nonprofit organization who has a passion to see something wrong made right, you are giving great purpose to what you're doing to make the wrong right, but you're also bringing great purpose to the individuals who partner with you. You are actually giving them greater purpose in their life. And so don't stop keep going because you will see great things in the work that you do, but those donors are going to find great joy in what they do. And that will bring you encouragement as well. That's awesome. Thank you, Lisa. It's great to be here. Thanks, Kelly. You can get in touch with Lisa through LinkedIn at Lisa Stuckerman, S-T-U-E-C-K-E-M-A-N-N and at her email, lstuckerman at iCloud.com. We will have those links in the show notes as well. Be sure to follow us and stay connected for all future episodes at lapoint.life. Thank you so much for joining us today. And until next time, keep on fighting for justice.